The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Vicki Oliver, author of Seven Ways to Become a People Person. Vicki Oliver is a Manhattan-based job interview and image consultant and the author of the best-selling books on personal branding, etiquette, and career development. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Vicki. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Well, according to you, people skills are the main reason people fail or succeed at work. And in a recent study that that you talk about in your book is 20,000 new hirees found that nearly half of them failed within 18 months and it wasn't because they lacked work skills. It was their it had to do with their attitude, their inability to be coachable and get along with others. Exactly. I think that what happened is that when we're in college, in a way, we're in a bubble and we're graded on on things, you know, our talents, and later we get into the workforce and we're not graded the same way as we used to be, and that is a very big adjustment, and there's also very few people to coach us and tell us what to do. So explain that to us. So we develop these skills in college, which work in college. Are you saying the skills we have in college are are skills that we write papers well, we take tests well? We write papers well, we take tests well. We, you know, we, we ace it on the communication skills. However, where we don't ace it are communicating with actual live human beings. And that's what we need when we get into the workplace. That's what we need. And it's, a, it's not just learning it. It's also recognizing it, recognizing that no matter what business you're in, there are going to be other human beings around you, and it needs you have to sort of have a, the people touch. Does this get exacerbated because now with the Internet, and I'm thinking the kids in college, they really don't have to communicate necessarily with their professors on a one-on-one or face-to-face because a lot of it's just done through email or texting? Exactly. And- I mean, online communication is a skill. You know, I'm not, I'm not denigrating it. It's a skill in and of itself. It's a very important skill to master. However, that's very different than looking somebody in the eye and listening to them and saying, I hear you. It's just totally different skill, and I think it's one that's getting worse. So give us an example. Take us through that. You know, give us an example of, of a, if you have a specific a student who does really well in school, let's say, even, you know, has a, a 3.5 average, graduates, applies. Even when you apply for jobs, you do that online also, and you don't necessarily have an interview that's face-to-face, you do it virtually, is that true? Well, I think, you know, you still have to meet somebody to be actually hired. I think it's pretty rare to get just be hired just completely online. 
But usually for a job, I mean, I, I've written five books, and uh, the first one is, was about specifically job interviewing. And I think for an interview, everyone is pretty much prepared. Like, you know, you're going in there. It's like a date. You have to impress the person. And that's fine. But the problem is, when you start working, you also have to impress people. Like, in person, making a great impression in person is just very different than online. Um, You have to be on sort of all the time, whereas when you're behind a computer screen, you can sort of choose when you're on. All right, let's... You, you said that you, you do, you have the interview, that's face-to-face, but you're right. prepared. It's very specific. It's, it's very specific. Yeah. It's 40 minutes. You know, anybody can be on for 40 minutes, especially when you've practiced. But the, the, the trick is when you're working with people, which usually you are, you just have to be a little bit courteous. It's like it's not who wins, you know. It's not who's right. It's getting along and trying to work within a team and certain parameters. Right. Or what, so give us examples of that. Like you're, you're at work, uh, you're doing your work, you have to communicate with your boss as well as your fellow employees. And somehow, and I guess particularly millennials who are now the ones who are going out and, and, seek, and getting new jobs, they don't seem to be able to do that. What do they do wrong? Do they have a bad attitude? Are they nasty? Or what, what? No, no, no. It's not, it's not about being nasty at all. It has to do with um, the expectations that some people have. Like in the old, old days, like over 15 years ago, people would begin a job and they would sort of more or less expect to kind of, quote, pay their dues, you know, maybe take a lesser job than that what they're what they're really good, great at, just to get their foot in the door, put in time, learn the processes. You know, the expectation was it was going to take a while to climb. And today, that expectation has kind of eroded. And part of the reason it's eroded, it, you know, might have something to do with the Internet because people just expect that, oh, it's 24-7, everything's instant, right? I can research anything instantly. I can learn anything instantly. And so some people don't really respect those old processes that may feel sort of antiquated and creaky. Are they antiquated, though? I mean, I'm thinking that millennials, or at least some of the research that I've read, they say millennials stay in their jobs no longer than two and a half years. Right. So they're not in a position to say, oh, I'm just going to wait and I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a job, as you said, that's less than what I actually can do. Yeah. Right. The expectations are what has to be adjusted slightly. Like millennials may have, I mean, I I hate putting giant labels on people and saying, okay, all millennials feel this way because that's not true, you know. But what I'm trying to say is there's been a, a shift so that younger people who are entering the workforce now, they may feel like they should be promoted faster. But the problem is they're they're working with other people who, you know, who did pay their dues, who did have to wait. And so even though, you know, millennials bring in great talents to what they do, the expectations of how fast they're going to be rewarded for those sometimes have to change. Well, how does that fit into the idea that people skills are the main reason that people fail or succeed at work? What do they do wrong? It has to do with expectations. They, I understand what you're saying. They, they think that they should get promoted faster. But what does that have to do with their people skills? How does that play out in the work 
for in the work well, situation? Well, let's say you enter uh, the workforce and you don't get a great assignment. Let's say you have to do kind of grunt work. Well, if that might be out of line with your expectations, and so you might feel impatient. You, you know, somebody wants you to do something that you feel is beneath you, and in a way, it is beneath you, right? In a sense, it is like you're more talented, perhaps, than the tasks that you're first asked to perform when you first enter a job. But part of the whole getting promoted, you know, part of that is learning how to be patient and how to wait for opportunities that arise. You know, it has to do with being around, like some people today want to enter the workforce and sort of clock in at 9 and leave at 5. Probably not a great idea. It's better to kind of go in early, stay late, and kind of hang out and wait for opportunities to come. Right. And that doesn't seem to be something that, in my experience, that, and I, I also don't want to label them, but that millennials want to do. Uh, um, that was in the older gen, not even Gen Xs, I think even maybe baby boomers, that was their style. Uh, right. But, again, not to label, but people <laughs> are in the workforce today, they have to realize that there are several different generations of workers at the workforce. It's not 100% people who are all the same age. And to get along with those other people, some of the older workers, sometimes somebody's expectations have to change a bit. Or they're going to be labeled brash, impatient, you know, difficult, etc. Well, you're very specific in the book. You share seven lessons for these young employees. And you yeah, actually, the young that's employees. not a book. It's just an article I wrote. Okay. Well, well, my book is called 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions. All right. And this is an article that relates to This is to an that. article that I wrote. Okay. Great. Well, uh, okay. But in this article, you share these seven lessons for yeah. young employees that help them move up the career ladder faster and y- y- discussing specifically how, and one of the things, because this is kind of what you're talking about, question authority in a way that makes a good impression. As you say, if you have baby boomers and even older people, traditionalists or whatever, as your boss, then you have to be able to do that, right? You have to be able to navigate through a workplace that has several different generations of people now. And you just can't expect that necessarily plum assignments and promotions are going to fall your way, particularly if you have difficulty getting along with those around you. So these these are seven tips that I uh, created just to keep in mind. Let's start with the first one. What's the first one? So the first tip is uh, just don't feel entitled. Like realize that there are different generations of people working in the same company that you are. And if you feel entitled, if you just say, oh, this is beneath me, or why do I have to come in early? (laughs) Or why do I have to work on this Saturday? You know, I've got better things to do. That is like an entitlement ship. And if you feel that way, it can be very off-putting to older workers who are working side-by-side with you because they had to do that. But, Vicki, what do you do if you have a combination of you have older an older boss, but then you have something, uh, another person perhaps who works with, with him or her who is more your age. I mean, do you have to be sensitive to every, to the way you're responding to, to the baby boomer or to the Gen X person? I mean, you have to be responsible to their particular age generation in terms of how you approach them or how you question their authority? I, I think 
that, you know, having um, respect, and, and part of it is just realizing that you can probably learn something from everybody that you work with. You know, it's not so much, oh, this guy is 50 or that person's 33 or whatever. It's more, you know, the attitude of I'm going to learn everything I can from this job. And if that means coming in early and staying late, that's what I'm going to do. Because I, they, they know more than me. And, and, and realizing that sort of says, okay, I'm not entitled. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I feel privileged to work here, and I'm going to learn what I can from those around me. You know, I want to interject here because I have an example. This was an example, actually, of, of a friend, someone I know. But uh, sometimes that isn't always the case. Some of these younger people... Millennials will come into a workplace, and their computer skills are, are far better than, say, oh, somebody. And they can do it much faster and quicker. I mean, I had a, a friend's uh, son say, you know, I'm in there, and I'm wasting my time. I can finish this. It takes my boss, you, you know, two hours to do it. Right. It takes me a half an hour to do it. Right. And I can do it at home. I don't have to do it here. Right. Right. So how do you work? What do right. you do with that? That's, yeah. that's it. That is, that is actually a very legitimate gripe. You know, because actually the, their computer skills are fantastic and they probably are much faster at things. And so some processes, some old processes like meetings, face-to-face meetings, may seem very laborious. But other people who are working there are used to long meetings, you know, used to paying their dues and climbing slowly. So... There are multiple generations of people there, and some people grew up in the company the old-fashioned way, and they are used to paying their dues. And you just have to work with those people, you know, not feel like you can leapfrog ahead of them, okay? So your computer skills may be better, but you also need to learn what, how, to, how to handle a meeting, you know, how to be graceful with a client, how to address a problem with poise, and some of the older workers will be able to steer you if they like working with you. What about when you, can they learn from you as well? I mean, isn't it a two-way street? Maybe there's some, you know, new ways of of acting or, or interacting that maybe you don't have to spend so many time at meetings, and maybe there's a way of approaching, obviously, your your boss about this, but the because it is a waste of time. It doesn't it kind of work both ways? I think it works both ways, but I think that mostly when you're new, you have more to learn from those around you. Even even if it's not technically true and they could really pick up a lot of computer skills from you, let's say, to use a case in point, it's still just as a general rule better to figure out how things work before you try to change them. You know, like learn the rules before you try to change them. How to question authority in a way that makes a good impression. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Vicki, give us an example, like in maybe two or three different work settings, how that plays out. I think that sometimes you can just, you know, the best thing to do is to see what people do who have been there for a long time and try to follow their lead. Um, You know, if there's no harm in asking either, let's say you want to skip a meeting, you can ask, like, is it all right for me to skip this meeting, you know, or do you think it's essential for me to be there? You know, there's like a polite way to do that. But if the answer is always, no, we need you in the meeting, 
then you need to realize that there are other things that you're gaining from the meeting. Like it may seem inefficient, and most meetings are really inefficient, you know. A lot of meetings are super boring, and a lot of the same information is gone over like over and over and over again. That is a fact. It's just a fact. But then you need to look at meetings as like, okay, what else can I get from the meeting? And a lot of times the reason just to be there is the FaceTime that you're getting. You're getting FaceTime with higher-ups. That's what you're getting. So to sit there and text and feel impatient and tap your foot and just, you know, if your attitude is like, I'm not here mentally, I'm not mentally present because I'm so bored, that's a real turn-off to people. So in this recent study that you're talking about, it, 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 it's a fact that it is a turn-off and these new hirees um, are, are getting fired and that they, they do fail at their jobs within 18 months. So, And you're talking about 46% of them. So that's a lot of young people getting fired. And, and it's a lot of young people. And, you know, and we don't learn. I mean, nobody learned. Nobody ever learned this stuff in school before. You know, no, I mean, it's not like you take etiquette classes when you're in college, right? You just don't learn this. But I think it might be exacerbated because the people who are coming into the workforce now are so adept at technology and they're so used to sitting in front of a screen and and working really super fast and being super efficient. And some of the, the old ways are not efficient and people have to realize that. It's not just about the completion of the task. It's also about getting along with the people that you work with. And, you know, let's say a company is about to make cuts, right? They're going to cut people that they don't like. Usually it doesn't have to do with the talent. It has to do with the how, you know, does the guy come in on time? Are they a team player or are they just in it for themselves, you know? Can I count on this person to come in when I really need them that one weekend? You know, it's these types of questions that factor in. I go back to, like, examples of, like, specific kinds of businesses. Which ones tend to be maybe more conservative or maybe old school and maybe other businesses that are less so? Is there a, is there a difference? I don't, I don't really want to, like, specifically generalize, like, this field is like this, that field is like that. I mean, you know, one should look around. If your boss texts you important information, probably that's a more youthful culture. Let's say there's a new business pitch at your, you know, at your company and your boss says, you know, great pitch, and it's, like, through a text, that's a certain kind of a culture. You know, another place would maybe wait until the next morning to convey the news. You have to see who it is that you work with. But even if you work with really young people in a very youthful culture or a dot-com culture, it still does not hurt you to have manners and to be a good people person. Because those people around you, some of them may not be good people, 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 and if you are, it usually helps. And, and that's an, and so as we're talking about this, these seven lessons for the young employees. How many have we covered? Because there are, I think there are a few others that you mentioned. Yes, there are several others yes. that I have not mentioned yet. Another thing I recommend is to try very hard to find a mentor. And I'm going to say that, but then I'm going to say, well, how do you do that? Because I mean, don't we keep hearing that mentors have disappeared, right? And My recommendation, I mean, first try to find somebody in your own organization that could help you and show you the ropes. That's always the best line for you to do. However, if you can't, 
I feel like then you need to find mentors from the outside. It needs to be somebody who's smart, who takes an interest in your particular career, and somebody that you can talk to about some of the issues you're facing in confidence. I mean, it would seem to me there are some advantages if you find somebody from the outside, because if they're from the outside, they're not competing with you in terms of job, you're not sharing things that perhaps you don't want people at work to know about. And I'm also thinking, and I'm not so sure that younger people do this necessarily, but getting a coach is is always a good thing. I mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, I I think career coaches are fabulous, and um, I think it's really very, very helpful to be able to talk to somebody, you know, on the outside in confidence about any issues that you're facing at the workplace. But it's also really helpful if you can find somebody inside because, you know, then when that person gets promoted, sometimes you get promoted, you know, they know like the specifics of how things work there. I think that um, sometimes when people join a new company, they think that everything about the company is written down on paper, you know, how things work and somebody's title and what that means. And that's part of it, but it's also actually seeing how things work in reality. I mean, sometimes... Somebody's title might be kind of low, but the person's been there for 15 years, you know. That person, that's that's somebody maybe to listen to. And you don't, unless you say, you know what, I'm going to give myself the time to map out how things really work in this company, you're not necessarily going to get it from what's on organizational charts. So take time to learn the corporate culture, and you're saying you can learn that from people if, who have been there for 10 or 15 years. You're going to learn the stuff that's, yeah, not written in the, in the manual. Um, exactly. It's not written in the manual. Like, let's say you're, you know, you're, let's say you work for somebody and that person has a very exalted title. Fine. That's great. And you have to listen to that person. But maybe that person has only been there for a year, you know? And that counterbalances, to some extent, other people who might have been there for longer. And, you know, to be really super impatient and say, oh, I'm smart, I'm going to rush through this, you're probably not going to pick up the vital cues that you need to know. You just have to approach it with a little bit of patience and just realize it's going to take a little longer, maybe, maybe longer than you want. Patience. I don't think that the younger generation, and I'm generalizing again too, but I'm not sure sure patience is really one of the the adjectives or the noun that they um, ascribe to. Do you? I mean, it goes against that culture. I don't, but I, I mean, these are called life lessons. You know, the article is about life lessons, and I agree. That's not something that anybody ever talks about or necessarily ascribes to, but I feel... You know, this is my own opinion. I feel that it is really helpful to develop some patience and just realize, you know, I mean, the other thing is, I'm not sure if it's in these tips, the other thing is, like, your own career path, you know, you may have to carve out your own path. I mean, I've read a lot of um, articles about millennials, and they they sort of expecting that somebody else is going to, you know, help them navigate, and that might not be the case. Like, you might have to figure out, you know, sometimes make a few horizontal moves before you ever make a vertical move. And for any of that, you need good people skills. 
Uh, well, good people skills, that's the key. And, and I, I, I agree with you. I, and, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I just see it as, as you do. I think it really is an issue. It is a problem. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not sure how, actually, if, let's say if you are in college, is there any way for them to prepare you with these people skills? Because you say, you know, you have these skills in college which really don't mesh with your skills as a, as in the workforce when you get a job, um, is there any way that you could kind of reach, you know, or get to the point where you could develop some of those skills in college so that you would be prepared when you get a job? I mean, I think with everything, you know, it's, it's just um, mindfulness and paying attention to it. If you hear this, you know, even this talk that we're having right now, right, and you're in college, you might say, oh, yeah, you know what, I might have to pay attention to that when I graduate. You know, that's, it's up to the individual colleges to say, okay, whether or not they want to train people to be better workers when they get out of college. That's an individual, like, college-by-college college decision. But as somebody, you know, a student listening to this, it's just really helpful to keep in mind, you know, part of what got you hired was your personality, not just your resume. Somebody met you and said, okay, yes, we like her. We don't like this guy. They, we, they met you, and they approved you. And once you're in there, it's just very helpful to remember. It's also your personality, the way you get along with people. You know, are you empathetic? Do you listen? All these soft skills, really. Are you just, you know, nice to be around? Or are you always saying, you know, walking in kind of with a chip on your shoulder, oh, do we really have to do this, and trying to always, always question everything the way it's always been done? What kind of, a, what kind of an employee are you? You know, are you creating a problem or are you helping to solve a problem? Yeah. I mean, I think, Vicki, that's really well said. We've only got about a minute left. But um, so I, if, if listeners um, want to go to your website, it's VickiOliver.com, VickiOliver.com. And with Vicky, a Y, V-I-C-K-Y. With a Y. <laughs> with a Y, got that. She's a Manhattan-based job interview and image consultant and the author of five best-selling books. And we've been talking about her article today, Seven Ways to Become a People Person. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. I certainly learned a lot, so I know the listeners have too. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Vicki. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back in a minute, so don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as the show is often hosted by national experts in the fields of leadership, teamwork, management, corporate responsibility, accounting, governance, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be more trustworthy. Your hosts are trusted professionals with years of experience in applying strategies with today's leading organizations. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Keith Cantor, author of The Green Box League of Nutritious Justice. Dr. Cantor has been an advocate of natural food and healthy living for 27 years. In 1994, he was appointed CEO of Service Foods Incorporated, the largest all-natural food company of its kind in the United States. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cantor. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Catherine. The Green Box League of Nutritious Justice. What is that? <laughs> let's get, let's talk, first tell us what it is. Well, first of all, it's a book, and uh, right now it's being also made into an app, but it was the most fun project I ever worked on. Uh, as you know from you know your work, teaching health and wellness to children is very important if we're going to turn around this health crisis in the United States. And the only way to do that is by getting them engaged. So what the Green Box League of Nutritious Justice does is it gets the children engaged. All the fruits and vegetables and proteins are animated. You know, we had them drawn as, you know, little, uh, basically people. So you have things like Adam Apple and Beauregard Banana and Bianca Broccoli and Porky Pig or Petey uh, Pig and, you know, different things uh, like that. And but then we have... the kids that make, that they can that respond to, or as you say, you get them engaged. So That's are you correct. saying that mother sits down or father sits down with the book and, and, and introduces them to these nutritious foods? Is that, how you, is that what you're saying in, in a yeah. way that they can understand it? Correct. Uh, we have descriptions of all the foods so they truly understand, you know, why apples are so good for you. And, you know, we have little fun snack facts in there so they understand that, 
you know, fruits and vegetables and the main proteins are, are good and water is good and that's H2O is how we have, have it uh, set up. And we did even uh, Sammy Sleep. So we went over all the things that are healthy and we have like comic books in there, but each one has a theme and there's coloring on the back of the comic book and even spelling, you know, uh, for, for the kids. And then there's regular uh, articles in there for the parents. Uh, or older children, why sleep is so important, why drinking enough water is so important. Yeah, you know, age group, how does this fit in? Because you, well, you, start, you started to tell me. So the book, The Green Box League of Nutritious Justice, includes what, elementary through what grades, and then you have specific ra- readings for the parents as well? Correct. And, and what it is, it's really a family resource. So for the very young children before elementary school, it has the pictures and the coloring and this spelling to get them uh, excited and get them to start naming, you know, the different fruits and vegetables and uh, proteins. So when they go to the supermarket, that's what they do. And there's 26 different comic books inside of it that features several of the superheroes because the Green Box League of Nutritious Justice are the superheroes. And the Legion of Unhealthy Injustice are the bad guys, which has OBCD in it and diabetes and cholesterol. So we made stories like that, but then we have all the real information. We have exercises in there for beginning, intermediate, and advanced that a family could do together, you know, without equipment. We have recipes in there that the children could actually help with, but we have 75 of those. And it's a very uh, good overall uh, family resource. That's why it's been winning all the awards. It yeah, won I understand. The Mom's it was award. the Mother's Choice Award. That, yeah. Congratulations. Recently you won that award. That's terrific. But I think the idea of introducing these kinds of foods to kids when they're, as you described, preschool kids, that being able to recognize foods is really key, really important. I mean, I'll, I'll just give an example. Sometimes I've been to the grocery store and the check, the the uh, Kids, maybe there are high school kids who are checking out the food. If I have, they don't know what an they don't know what an artichoke is, or what kale is, or what even some more common vegetables are. And so, I think what you're, I mean, what you're doing is is really important because if you start when they're four, they're going to know what it is by the time they're in school. That's correct, and you have to remember they don't teach this in the schools. Even though they have a, supposedly a health class, in the schools, a health class is sex education. And I don't have anything against that, but I think it's more important when they're little that they know an apple is healthier than a cupcake and why. And they don't teach that in the schools. So this tries to uh, teach that. And, and it and makes it some, easy for parents as well, because some of them oh, don't the know parents, how to teach it. So you've you given them this guide, this manual. Yeah. You should see some of the emails I get with the parents telling me they take the kids shopping now, and the kids run around and they're naming everything because they memorize the names. There's Kenny Kale. They didn't know what Kale was before this, but they saw the words and they had to spell Kale. So they remember it, and they run around the supermarket and they're naming. They're Stuart Strawberry. And now the only negative part is the parents on the email said, you know what my kid calls me now? <laughs> Well, there's only so much I could do, but uh, <laughs> at least we have them thinking at a young age about healthy living and fruits and vegetables and water and sleep and, 
No, it sounds funny, but now that a, a four-year-old knows that uh, sleeping the right amount helps them to become a superhero, they don't fight as much to go to sleep. Yeah. And also, I think, how do you, uh, doctor, how do you make the connection between, okay, now the kids, they know what good vegetables are and sleeping well and, and, and drinking enough water. How do you get it so that the parents then buy the kale or buy the carrots and don't give in to buying the sugary drinks or the chocolate marshmallow bars or whatever, you know, the stuff that isn't good for them? Well, or does if it they work read the, kids the say, well, book, I, yeah, I want those vegetables yeah. because they're asking for them. If the, if the parents read the book with the child, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that they know why they have to do it and what it means to the health of their uh, children, why they do it. And then since they're doing it for the children, they tend to do it for themselves. Because this is one of those subjects you can't be very hypocritical on. You can't be eating potato chips and tell the kid to eat his carrots. No, it, it doesn't work that way. So, and we have all the information, like I said, in the book between detailed descriptions, the fun stories. We even have Paula Plus there, which is the Presidential Act of Lifestyle Award Plus, and the plus is nutrition. And I happen to be the lead advocate. So if they follow the program, they could send in the forms either through my website or, you know, just copy them from the book. And as long as they did what they were supposed to do over an eight-week period, they get a certificate that's signed by a famous football player and a famous gymnast. Do you remember, I don't know how old you are, but do you remember the old... I'm not uh, telling you either. <laughs> I, I, I won't ask. Uh, the Presidential Fitness Award yes, when I we do. were kids? Yeah, Okay, yeah. they don't... This is what they used to replace it. But the schools don't have gym classes anymore, so they use people like me to try to spread it around. Well, you're the person to do it. Um, you are, as you have been described, I guess, as what, the premier doctor correlating nutritional food science with preventing and mitigating disease. Let's talk about that. I mean, you talk, is that something that you uh, talk to the kids about? You know, and it's not only eating well to um, maintain your weight and not become overweight or obese, but also preventing disease. That's correct. Uh, and, you know, you have to simplify it depending on the age group you're speaking uh, to. But the bottom line is the Center for Disease Control says over 75% of all chronic disease is nutrition-related. So when you have nutrition's father have a minor heart attack in the book and it shows what he had to change, that the kids could relate to because it was a superhero's father who got sick. And he had to change the way he ate and he had to exercise more. And so we try to do that through stories that uh, the children can understand. And obviously the parents are going to understand it right away and say, hey, that's a good way to do that. You're talking about, what did you say, 75% is the statistic? If over 75%, over 75%. of all chronic disease is nutrition-related. And what, in my regular program, you know, which is Green Box Foods, that's the natural, uh, national program, but what we do for large companies and uh, nonprofit organizations and large organizations is we become either part of a health and wellness platform or... Depending on the size of the organization, we become the health and wellness platform for them. And we put our emphasis on nutrition. We have fitness, we have exercise, but 
the biggest bang for the buck, which is what companies uh, are looking for, is nutrition. And a lot of it is, you know, very simple, but most companies, health and wellness companies, don't put their emphasis there because different exercises are more, I guess, exciting or attractive, but that makes up less than 25% of uh, the problem. So we break down all the major uh, diseases, and we give them specific menus if they have these different uh, problems, you know, high cholesterol, if they have heart problems, if they have kidney problems, if they have Crohn's disease, if they have diabetes. And then we give them uh, menus, and then they could even push a, a button, and they could order the food. Doctor, and the food is shipped to them right away. I have away. to ask you this, though, Dr. Cantor. It seems to me that... And I, that uh, Medicine is big business, and so is illness. You're talking about over 75% of all these uh, chronic diseases could be uh, eliminated if you just had good nutrition. And I couldn't agree with you more, but it seems to me that the medical profession is really not on your side. They would rather medicate you, give you tests. I mean, I mean it's a huge, huge business. How do you get over that, overcome well, that? Part of the problem, or the very, very first step has been taken because they made obesity, which is one of the bigger problems that we have in this country. Now they made it officially a disease, so when the doctors do something to help with that, now they could get paid. But it's not that the doctors are against it. It's the way the system is set up. And the way our system is set up, uh, a doctor gets paid for fixing a problem. There's nothing set up in the system at this point if they prevent a problem. So if the doctor prevents the problem, he doesn't get paid. That's why the health and wellness industry started, because the companies themselves or organizations want to lower their overall medical costs and uh, now even the insurance companies are putting health and wellness programs uh, into practice, and uh, the people get a discount off their premiums. So the bottom line is we have to somehow change, and they are doing some experiments with it, but we have to change what the way the medical system works because right now it's impossible for them to do anything because this, all they would do is put themselves out of business. Well, I, I'm, I'm always surprised that, you know, you were talking about the obe obesity problem and overweight and then obesity. I mean, doctors very seldom will say to a patient, um, you have to lose weight, or if you lose weight, uh, you know, it will it will help your diabetes, so you, you'll lower your blood pressure, or they, they don't seem to really address, I guess that's what you're saying, they don't address that issue. Because in the past, they were never paid to do that. So if they give somebody the, the advice or give them a specific menu and tell them to do something, they weren't reimbursed for that. Now that it's classified by the American Medical Association as a disease, now if they help with that problem, they get paid for it. And there's different experiments going on around the country to try to... Uh, follow up more with the patients, do more teaching with the patients where they do get paid and the different insurance companies are doing tests. And uh, that, I think, will become the norm because the most efficient, effective, and cost-effective way 
to lower health care costs is to prevent the disease before it starts. Dr. Cantor, haven't they done that in China, that doctors did get paid or do get paid for preventing disease? First of all, almost the whole rest of the world does a lot more preventive care than the United States does. Now, what we call preventive care is doing certain tests, and which the doctors get paid for, and we call that uh, preventive care. But in uh, some parts of Europe and in uh, some parts of Asia, Asia, they spend more time on uh, preventative care. And they have, you know, much lower uh, chronic disease rates than we do in almost all the categories. So are we following some of their models? Are we creating new models? Because you mentioned there are some experiments going on. So maybe... uh, We're not following their models because it's hard to change everything. You have to remember, obviously, we're a capitalistic society, so things run uh, based on money. So we have to tweak it, unfortunately, slower. That's what opened the door up to health and wellness companies for people who do or try to do what... Uh, we do. And the, one of the things, because I work with a lot of MD doctors, I'm an ND, naturopathic physician, but when I deal with the medical doctors, I just ask them, how much would it help your patients if they, their uh, sugar level was lower, their glucose level was lower, uh, they weren't obese, and they didn't smoke? Or forget even the smoking part because there's programs for that. And, and if they worked out on a regular basis. And they all say the same thing. It would be unbelievable. Right? That's, what we'll, that's what I'll do for you. I have another question. What about when your own doctor is, is overweight and or, and or obese? Do they have yeah, to set up some kind it, of an example? I mean, I, you know, I don't go to the doctor that much. I go for regular checkups. Uh, but I, I've noticed that my doctor has put on a lot of weight. I mean, I want to say to him, uh, he, he's like 40 pounds overweight, he looks to, to me. So uh, don't they have to be kind of a, a, an example to their patients? I mean, I'm thinking... You, you, you would think, as a matter of fact, uh, just as a funny example, recently my daughter got married uh, in April, and she choreographed a dance. You know, she lives in Dallas, and I'm here in Atlanta with my wife, and... Uh, but when she came home, she had the dance all choreographed. So we did this silly dance, you know, where it started off slow, and then she had some of the more, well, some of it was the twist, which that was mine. But all the rest of it was, you know, the hand jive and all, all these different things. Then it went back to a slow thing. So I got the videotape, and I put it on my website, and I said, uh, healthy living at age 60. That's what I titled it. And I got like 100,000 hits from all the different YouTube places. But your concept is correct. People want to see how a guy 60 years old is running around like a, a crazy person. Yeah, that's a perfect example. And, and that's the example I use. But even in the book when I said uh, one of the few things you can't be a hypocrite about is you're eating potato chips and you kill the tell your child to eat carrots, it's the same thing. How's your doctor going to tell you to lose weight if you're overweight? And it's the same thing uh, with children, you know, because we're sort of like children in a sense to the doctor, regardless of age. How does he lead by, uh, he, him or her lead by example uh, if, you know, they're overweight or they're puffing on a cigarette? And what about hiring people? I've been to doctor's offices and laboratories and nurses. The nurses are 
I mean, I, I, I'm not, this is not casting any aspersions on nurses, but very often they're like 300 pounds or, or more. And particularly, it, this one doctor I had gone to, um, I think all the nurses and all the, the, the people who were out in the front who were the receptionists were all obese, all overweight. Well, there are some legalities if you don't hire somebody because they're overweight. You know, mine's much smaller, so it's easy for me, and everybody's part of our health and wellness program. So every hour on the hour, everybody in my company is sent either an email or a text, and for one minute, every hour on the hour, they have to do an exercise. And then we're all divided up into teams. I'm part of the health nuts, and we have to do an exercise every hour for a about a minute. You know, it could be lunges, and you'll see everybody in the office doing it. So just like you do with the children, you do it with adults. You have to get them engaged. You have to make it fun. And that's how we try to lead by example. Uh, you are leading by example, but I, I would say, I mean, for, in my experience anyway, and it's anecdotal, but it seems to me that most of the, even when you go into any healthcare facility, whether it's a nursing home or assisted living facility or you go to a hospital, all of the healthcare work, health, and I'm putting healthcare in, in, parentheses, in parentheses because they are not leading by example. No, but if you work with any of the people in health and wellness, not just healthcare, you'll very rarely see somebody who's overweight who does anything to do with health and wellness because that usually involves eating right and uh, exercise. So when the people come to the offices or those people, they know they have to lead by example. The, Let's the talk regular about health professionals don't feel they have to lead by example. I want to talk about portion control because, and this doesn't have to do with healthcare facilities, but with restaurants and, and many people eat out on very often, um, at least three to four times a week. And what about portion control? How do you do, do you talk about that? Yes, in the book uh, we do it, and uh, of course, when I do my regular speaking engagements, you know, in, in my uh, company, everything's vacuum sealed and portion controlled. And the problem with most people is they may even eat correctly, but if you're going to have a T-bone steak, you know, those are usually 16 ounces. Now, there's nothing good with all-natural beef. You know, where they didn't use all the additives and preservatives. But you should only have four or five ounces. You shouldn't have 16 ounces. And we do that with uh, just about everything. We eat too much. So you, you could eat healthy proteins, but you don't eat four pork chops, even if they're all, all natural. You eat one, possibly uh, two of them, and then you have enough fruits and vegetables and a healthy fat because that's what your body needs in our combination, and we don't do it. We pick our favorites, most people, and then that's what we uh, load up on. So it, it's portion control, but that's not how uh, Americans were taught to eat. They were just taught to finish their plate yeah, I, and, and, and pick their favorites. And wouldn't you say also there's an addiction to the salt and to sugar, especially when you I'm mentioning going out to eat again because that's when I find it the most difficult. At home, I exercise portion control. You're right. If I have a steak, I can have a four, five-ounce steak. It doesn't have to be a one-and-a-half-pound steak or even fish. I mean, you can have a, you can overeat. 
eat a pound of fish, you only need six ounces of fish, whatever that is. That's correct. So what you should do is, if you go to a restaurant like that, is cut it in half right away and and tell them, say, hey, I'm going to take this out of my doggy bag. Now they have the fancier things, but it's still a doggy bag to me. (laughs) But that's not how... uh, you know, uh, people are raised, but that's what they should do, and you have to get uh, used to it. Like, I don't use, I eat food that has salt in it or possibly sugar in it, but I don't add any salt or uh, sugar to anything at all. Yeah. I mean, none, zero. What, what about processed foods? I, I try not to eat any processed foods, except for the real junk food, which I'll deny. Uh, but except for that, you know. I'm the CEO of an all-natural food company, so I'm pretty lucky in that sense. I, I take it home with me. So I, I don't eat any processed foods uh, for any of my regular meals. Yeah, so you stay away from processed foods. You go out to eat, cut it in half, or share it with the person. You can split a meal sometimes and have separate appetizers. I do that. Uh, so there are ways to overcome it. But there, you have to kind of, I guess, attack this problem from lots of different angles, like you say. You know, prevention, nutrition, portion control. Um, it's a, it, there are lots of kind of um, pieces to the pie, I guess, if we want to overcome this huge... You have like- to make a decision at some point in our, your life if you want to lead a healthy life, because we're living longer now, but... It's great to live longer, but if the last 15 years you're miserable and in pain, you know, that's not good. But if you could uh, live longer and be healthy and still feel good and still be able to, uh, if economics uh, permitted, travel or play sports, that's how you should want to live. And people have to make that uh, decision. They're not going to make that decision if they're diabetic or pre-diabetic when they're 30 and 40 years old or if they're 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight. Yes, you can live longer in the United States because that's one of the things that you hear. We're living longer, but I think we're living longer unhealthy because we have all these medications and all these things that help us to live longer, although we're not living healthier. And so, as you say, we're in pain. I I mean, to me, I don't know, all these hip replacements and knee replacements are a result of people chronically being overweight and putting all the pressure on. That's a a lot of it. Even cancer. Yeah. they say 40 to 50% of cancer could be prevented from uh, eating an, you know, healthy and all-natural all foods. And that's the CDC saying these uh, figures, the easy things like, you know, heart disease, you know, that... We have one minute left. I hate to cut uh, you off, but we only have one minute left. I'm cutting you off because I want you to give your website to everybody. It's Dr. Keith Cantor, author of the Green Box League of Nutritious Justice. So what is the website that we can go to? It's D-R for doctor, Keith, K-E-I-T-H, Cantor, K-A-N-T-O-R dot com. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Yes, you are inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 